Josh in Hiroshima, and today we have Hiko Simon in Tokyo. Hiko Simon in Tokyo. Hi, thanks for joining. This is Seeking Sustainability Live, and I'm JJ Walsh. Today we're talking with Hiko Simon. It is a sub-series in Seeking Sustainability Live where we focus on recent news happening in Japan and how it relates to sustainability issues. Nice to be back. It's been a long time. How's the weather it is. in Tokyo? The weather in Tokyo today is getting a little bit chilly, actually, at the moment. It's sort of coming down. It's actually snowing not that far north of Tokyo at the moment. So we're having a bit of a cold snap, but it was still nice today. So, yeah. Absolutely beautiful day today um, in Hiroshima, but morning and now going into evening, it's cold again. So I've got my sweater on. I'm like yep. two wardrobes out at the same time right now. Like uh, that time of year. Warm, right? Well, I still, this, I still prefer this time of year to uh, stinking hot all the time and freezing cold all the time that we have. This is a narrow window of actually pleasant during the day weather, so I, I do enjoy it. It doesn't last for very long. I am with you 100%. <laughs> yeah. A spring and autumn girl. I am I'm not too keen on winter, not too keen on summer, a little bit too cold, too hot for me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, great. Um, let's start. So for anybody who doesn't know, we usually talk about uh, recent news in Japan. And of course, because my focus is always on sustainability, we talk about the connections with people, planet and profits and how to find a balance, which is always hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hiko, do you want to just introduce yourself a little bit? Because I think using HAPS, this is the first time we've done it together. Oh, good point. And yes, I am uh, completely overwhelmed with all the technology right now. But uh, this, I, I, I understand this is possibly going out on all the socials. And um, if so, hello, all the socials. So uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Hiko Simon. I uh, run a YouTube channel where I just do basically every week. I sit down and I look at the news from the week that I find the most interesting. And I just talk about it. And it's quite a good bunch of people that follow it. Uh, and it's fun to talk about. And um, yeah, um, uh, I, I, among the things I, I generally talk about, it things with a Japan focus, but I'm always interested in space and technology and environmental stuff. And um, yeah, from that perspective, uh, we have a connecting point, and it's really fun for me to do a show just focusing on sustainability topics. It's a really big challenge in the world right now, isn't it? It's it's such an urgent thing to do, and uh, you know, it is a, it's newsworthy stuff, and it's really exciting and interesting to discuss what's going on, particularly in Japan. So that that's the angle I like I like to uh, take on it. I love doing getting together with you about once a month and talking about it. Yeah, it's so fun because you you come from a very different background. You've got a very different insights. You're in the big city. I'm in a medium sized city, so it's it's a, always a good discussion. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah, no, it's always a pleasure. And I, yeah, yeah, I, I enjoy the, you know, I, I actually, I, I very much respect people who are more dedicated. Um, I've worked around sustainability, like professionally, and, um, you know, and I've always had an interest in it. But I, I, I wouldn't say I'm as committed wholeheartedly. I'm not vegetarian. I'm not, you know, I, 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 I'm not a perfectly living green sort of a person. So I respect a lot of people who are. 
but I find the I, I find the problems of it really really interesting, and 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 the solutions and so on, and and figuring out you know so that's that's what I really enjoy discussing with you and, and people with you know similar interests but but different viewpoints. I think that's the best way well, to absolutely. figure out problems. Absolutely, and I I think that is such an important point that you you feel like you're a normal person living a normal <laughs> life, but you're trying to find better solutions, like better options. I I mean to be honest, I'm. Mm. I'm really embracing that. Like I used to be much more black and white. No, no, you got to be vegan. No, no, everybody's got to stop using plastic 100%. But it's just impossible, especially <laughs> oh. in Japan. So if yeah. I can inspire someone out there to make a better choice than they were making before, if it's available, that's that's a score. That's a win right there. Yeah. I saw in your Twitter the other day the um the, the bananas and the plastic wrappers, which I agree are ridiculous, but uh but you know, you're still finding good use for them and and, and yeah, you know, yes. Uh, yeah, I know the struggle. You, you gotta, it's a daily struggle. Is it it's wrapped in plastic, which I hate, but I'm reducing yep. food waste and I think food waste might be a bigger problem. So, yeah. you know, you for every one of these issues, I, I'm always thinking, which is worse, which is better? Try to make a better choice, right? Yep, indeed, <laughs> indeed. Well, I want to drop you right in there. I, I really love this news story that you talked about in your amazing talk show that I can't believe you do almost every Sunday. Uh, <laughs> Tokyo Tonight, you've been doing it for 10 years, right? Is it that long? It pro probably. I have nothing better to do. So yes, it's my hobby. I just, I just go on. I talk and I log off. But uh, it's not. It's, it's not. It's, it's nothing special. But I do enjoy oh, it. So yeah. it's so fun. And I don't know. I mean, I love this banter back and forth with guests. I, I think doing it solo yeah. is so much harder. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got Luis Poppy popping in. Thanks, Luis. Great to see you here. And we've got uh, the Red Value from oh, YouTube. Yeah. Thanks for joining. Can yeah. you see this? Uh, I cannot. You can't. Uh, you know what? Maybe I can. Ah, comments. There's yeah, comments choose the comments because you should be able to see it. I can and, see it. And uh, Peragotti. Hey, Simon and JJ, thanks for joining. Yep, regular viewer. Good to, good to have you, Peragotti. And awesome. the red Or Or we should use your style, right, Hiko? We should say boom. Boom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Eco friendly boom, but yes. Yeah. All <laughs> no, right. no, no, so, no carbons used. So I uh, chose one of the articles that you talked about in Tokyo okay. Tonight, which yeah. is probably, to me, one of the strangest pieces of news what from Japan that? about Japan trying to overreach even while people are outside of Japan about marijuana. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like chasing people or well, basically threatening mainly Japanese citizens, but also residents of Japan, like you and I, uh, overseas, reminding them that uh, the Japanese criminal code on uh, on marijuana cannabis use is uh, not territorially restricted. Uh, technically, you can be uh, charged and convicted of using or possessing marijuana even outside of Japan. They'll come for you. And they're, they're actually, when it was just legalized in New Jersey and New York City, in fact, I think New York State, uh, and the same thing happened when they did it in Colorado and Washington was the local consulates sent emails to all the local Japanese residents saying, uh, before you go out to those uh, prohibition parties, um, remember, you know, that, the, that you're still subject to Japanese law and you can be convicted when you return to Japan just to scare everybody. And, you know, and I asked the question, I mean, 
there's a few layers, obviously. There's a context we could go more into in this show about, you know, how it should be regulated in the first place. But from my perspective, it's also the thing. I mean, do they send threatening uh, emails to people in Macau who are gambling? Do they send threatening, you know, the, the, the different countries have different things that are legal and not legal, including drinking age, including things like gambling, including, you know, different sorts of vice. And, you know, I, this is the only case I know where the government actually proactively chases after and threatens its own citizens taking advantage of of different laws in other countries yeah so it seems it's, it's, it's ridiculous crazy but one of the things you were talking about which really struck a chord with me which i've talked to organic farmers in japan about too mm -hmm. is how hemp has a long history in japan sacred i mean for a start sacred in shinto and the emperor himself was the patron of the industry at the at the end of world war ii i mean the whole world war ii thing all those warplanes and uniforms they were all made out of hemp you know it was uh it was actually japan didn't use synthetic didn't use rayon or nylon or anything like that they didn't have petroleum-based fibers or anything like that it was all done from it grows it's a natural plant in japan it grows by the highways up in hokkaido and and it's not the not, you know, right again, from what I understand nowadays, there's super powerful stuff. You know, it's being bred to be super powerful for people who want to use it, you know, to get high. But in Japan, you know, it's, it's hemp. It's not particularly strong stuff. It's all over the place. But, but it, it's a it's, great source material yeah, for yeah. fabric, for ropes. Um, and I was surprised that it had a history in Japan. Big um, history in Japan. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. In sumo wrestling, those ropes that they that they use, you know, the, the, the massive ropes that the wrestlers use in, in the Shinto ceremonies, that's all hemp. Um, you know, it's actually integral and, and it's wonderful. It grows fast. It's great productive stuff. So it was actually all the demonization that, that's happened. And it's funny how far they've taken it. They've adopted imposed morality and they've taken it beyond <laughs> the, uh, the, 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 the morality of the, the country that imposed it. This was the Americans, GHQ, that imposed it on Japan in order to force Japan to buy American synthetic fibers, you know, by basically demonizing it and, outli and outlawing it. And, you know, 50 years later, America's legalizing it and Japan is treating it like it's worse than crack cocaine, you know, um, what, the, the, what with is all the hysteria. On that? Because usually, in my experience, you see America do something and about five or 10 years later, you see Japan adopt the same thing. So now that America is making marijuana legal, are we going to see big changes in Japan? Because it actually is good for the economy. If, it, if you start using it as a medical marijuana, at least, right? Which even that is, of course, I mean, in Japan as well, Japan, the hysteria, yeah. I mean, and not just, I mean, there's also with Adderall, for example, like uh, ADHD drugs are considered crystal meth in Japan and people have gotten in trouble bringing that into Japan. So I think the hysteria, Japan just has a different thing about the policy around drugs. And it's almost religious. It's not, it's not a health-based policy. You know, they don't claim, they, when they say it's dangerous, they're not really thinking about medical danger. They'll say medical danger, but but it's really about that you're breaking a, a serious rule. You know, <laughs> uh, it, it's really just boil on that line, and that's the way it's seen across the board. So the problem right now, I think, is that the stigma. I mean, when you have a celebrity in America, if you found out that a celebrity, a news anchor, or uh, someone in a TV drama, possessed two grams of marijuana for personal use, you know, that would not be a particularly scandalous news story, right? Even in a state where it was illegal, it would be like a speeding ticket, I think, in terms of social treatment. In Japan, you know, that's a, you have to stop your career. You have to have an apology press conference. The music companies will throw out your music, uh, tainted that it was uh, in any way enhanced by uh, by recreational drug use or anything like that. Like, you know, and then multiple, it still happens. So I think 
washing away the stigma is not easy. Funny story from that funny memory. I don't know if you were in, you were probably in Japan at this time too. And in the same year, there were two cases of marijuana um, in the news in Japan. One was, I think it was Paul McCartney tried to put marijuana in, right? And the other was, did you ever watch Zatoichi, the blind swordsman? I used to watch it as a kid in Hawaii and right. that actor who was not actually blind and that was a, a surprise to me, which is a different story. He was um, arrested trying to take marijuana from Japan into Hawaii. <laughs> I haven't heard of the second one. I heard of the first one's famous and there are so many Japanese who are embarrassed that Japan is the country that arrested Paul McCartney. Um, but uh, the second one I didn't know, and taking it from Japan, I mean, that's uh, exporting. Wow. Into Hawaii, of all yeah. places, you know, you can get the it. The last there, place you need it, right? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I thought that was really interesting. And then it was also, it's not only about uh, government policy trying to control what people do outside the country, which I thought was really strange, but yeah. it's, it's also the whole idea that hemp was a heritage product in japan which i didn't know so i really enjoyed yeah. that not fascinating it's worth reading up on there are uh, you know i didn't have the links when i did the show but there are there are great stories about how the emperor toured the country this is during the occupation period this happened under ghq when japan was under direct rule by america that this was that the, the regulations against hemp were imposed the emperor toured the country around hemp growers assuring them that uh, that he would personally make sure that all the hemp growers in japan wouldn't be ruined by this and that they'd be taken care of um and obviously Obviously, they kind of were. I mean, there are um, hemp is produced in Japan. You can buy hemp beers and hemp products, and there are there are licensed farms and whatever in There's Niigata and places of like the that. Oils in the health food stores here, you'll see the yeah, oil domestically produced C CBG oil or something, and yep. you'll see that here. So that must be allowed, right? So, so probably these are the old farm, the, the the last remnants of the old farmers who were wiped out. I mean, it's funny as well how you talk about how. Um, how how fanatically Japan holds on to um, you know the tradition of things like whaling and so on, and, and you know even when the whole world's sort of against it, and yet you know with hemp, which is actually religiously sacred and naturally what, growing wild all over the place here, uh, and, and yet they actually did allow that industry to sort of get wiped out, even when it was under the protection of the emperor. So yeah, it, it's fascinating, but I think what's really interesting is how hardened the social attitudes are against it, and it's not based on a rational. It's not based on a, you know, is it worse than cigarettes or alcohol or anything like that, which is how everyone talks about it in New Zealand and America. It's based on, oh, if you take that, you're a criminal, you know, and it, it's so hard to undo that. I don't know if Japan can undo that, but yeah. But but then again, uh, this is a rule following country. So if they do decide yeah. to change the rule, um, everybody will accept it a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. Well, it'll be a very smooth transition, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the thing. Uh, so I've, I've never seen it go the other way. Like when I came to Japan in Shibuya, like th there was a thing that um, magic mushrooms were not were not explicit explicitly regulated. And so but they were through lack of regulation legal in Japan. And in Shibuya, there were magic mushroom shop magic mushroom shops. And it was actually Japan was getting called out by America that, hey, you guys are out of line. You know, you should be regulating like us. And Japan finally did. But it was only like 10 years ago. I would love to see if Japan couldn't go back the other way, but the reason it's going the other way in America is because it's a logical policy, you know, weighing risk and benefits decision. And Japan doesn't really operate like that, you know, so I would love to see it, but it'll be, I'm skeptical that it, it, it should happen, but, but I'm skeptical. We'll see. Uh, of course, I think we have to talk about COVID. 
Yes. Um, how's the vaccine rollout and uh, testing is kind of normalized now since we last talked. But yeah. vaccine rollout, I think, is the big issue that everybody's trying to figure out. There's not much information, right? Well, well, I, I subscribe to all the information that's out there on it, and I share it like as I get it. So, um, you know, the government is sharing how many shots are being given every day. They do do day regular press conferences on how much of the stuff they've shipped in. Um, I kind of get it. People from the UK and America, where everyone back home is already getting vaccinated wonderfully at, at, at great rates, and, and I think that's wonderful. And they're saying, why can't Japan be vaccinating as fast as America? Um, I kind of like... Uh, my perspective on that is I, I get the complaining and are we there yet and let's hurry up and put pressure so we get it as soon as possible. That's fair enough. And keeping the government accountable for that, that's fair enough as well. But we can't get, you know, Japan can't give it when it doesn't have it. The vaccines come from America yeah. and UK and Europe and they're going to give it to themselves they first. they don't have their own. Yeah. Um, even countries like Canada or countries in Europe that aren't manufacturing their own mm. are behind the curve, right? Um, yeah. So I mean, Japan also, is particularly behind, but yeah that I'm really surprised about is the the deaths are so low in Japan. Like the numbers on this this data right here, it's almost 500,000 people have been tested positive. Well, there but was a the weird thing last year. It's really low, right? And you know, everyone was saying, oh, they're just not testing enough and not finding enough of the cases. Or, they're, they're, or, or there are other people saying, oh, there must be deaths and they're just not labeling them as COVID deaths. It can't be right. It can't be right that Japan can be doing better than Europe and, uh, you know, and North America. But then when they looked at the overall, the total death data, Last year, you remember there was a time when Japan actually had less than average death because during the flu season, nobody got flu because everyone was hiding at home. <laughs> so actually, there were actually fewer than normal deaths. It was actually, you know, when everyone went there to go find the hiding, you know, the, the smoking gun of Japan hiding the data. So it seems, and now they've taken all these surveys of the population to see, okay, how many people have antibodies indicating that they might have had it in the last few months? And when Tokyo is 1% and everywhere else in Japan, it's still a 0. Point something percent, i.e. it just hasn't rip through the society you know so far but of course what terrifies me where what i'm becoming increasingly focused on is 104 days to the olympics now and uh while cases are starting to spike up again in tokyo and i don't know if anyone's factoring in the idea of having an unvaccinated tokyo because we're still not going to be vaccinated and inviting 200,000 uh people into the city for a super spreader event and what that's going to do um you know we've had a uh, after all this time of being so good and everybody staying home and wearing masks and socially distancing I, I hope it doesn't get ruined by that so that is concerning well, i, I yeah. was glad to hear that they postponed the go-to campaign again Although right when the spikes are happening three I'm days ago three it. days ago the patron hey, of the go-to uh, campaign mcneil just joined thanks I, for joining hey. Baye. yeah and Mike Craddock, thank you for your comments. Been really good comments. Uh, the cost to incarcerate people in Japan who get caught with possession is very high. I can't believe oh. the public doesn't care more about legalizing it. Yeah, good point. They don't care about legalizing it because it's like it's very similar to tattoos in Japan. It's not about whether it's good for you or bad for you. It's that it's seen as a, a, a sign, you know, a, a, a stigmatic badge that you're a criminal. There's, if you have marijuana, you must have bought it from some gangsters, and so you must associate with gangsters. And it's the same thing with tattoos, and that's why they have bans on it. I so there's a social thing. It's it's very similar to tattoos and how yeah. the use of marijuana. I I actually have met people in Japan, young Japanese people who have been.
in jail in Japan mm. because they got caught with marijuana and they had to stop their businesses. They are also often people with really cool tattoos, not yakuza <laughs> tattoos, uh, fashionable tattoos. So I was thinking, wow, the stigma is slow to change, but maybe when it changes, that'll make a difference. Uh, yeah, I know people in Japan, uh, you know, I used to surf. I know people who, and it's the same thing. It's people who accept the the social pressure to conform and not have tattoos and, and, and say no to drugs, which is amazing because it actually seems to work in Japan. Um, and the people who sort of make their own sort of judgments, you know, uh, and take the risk. Um, and yeah, there there is an increasing number of people who 30, 40 years ago, the idea of uh, fashion tattoos, uh, it was probably unthinkable you know, in Japan, but now there's a pretty high percentage of people that do it. And I suspect you'll find similar attitudes around drugs. But of course, because people are so aware of the very strong and prevailing negative attitudes, they'll be very careful about sharing that. Yeah, for sure. Um, did you have a topic you wanted to do? I've got a few here. Are you fine <laughs> with my choices? Please, please, yeah. <laughs> Um, I really like this article that Pan Times covered, um, some of the things that their writers would like to see in terms of food culture. And one of them, of course, was getting rid of single-use plastic. Now, single-use plastic is a lot huger of an issue maybe in Japan than other countries. I just don't think it's, I mean, I was really glad to see that they started charging for plastic bags. That made a big difference. Uh, doing beach cleanups every month, we see a lot less bags, but we still see so much packaging, so much plastic bottles. It's just, it's every, you can't buy anything without plastic. It's just yeah. so daunting, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think the problem, as I understand it, is that while there's increasing awareness of plastics being, you know, relying on petroleum and being terrible for the environment and all that sort of thing, at the same time, people are so used, they, they associate plastic packaging with sanitation. Uh, and so the idea of when you're having sweets, which are like chocolates, which are all loose in a box and not individually wrapped, they think, I'm going to get it all over my, my fingers, which if you don't have them individually wrapped, as is the norm in America or New Zealand or whatever, we don't care. But Japanese people, once they once they perceive it as being dirty or you know messy or something like that, it's sort of like, well, you have this turnaround now that people are saying, okay, we should get rid of plastics, but they still want to have individually wrapped chocolates, you know, inside of a, a bag, yeah, which is still ridiculous. Whole, but. Yeah, I mean, I understand, you know, especially during COVID, you have to be more careful. Everybody's worried about germs. Um, but like I've been to cafes and I'd be having this beautiful uh, coffee, tea, cake and cookie set and absolutely everything is in a reusable bowl or a cup. It's beautiful. And they'll still give me the plastic spoon or the plastic straw or the plastic oshibori or something, right? And I'll be yeah. like, but why not reusable for this? Because I, as a consultant, I often talk to businesses about it. Yeah. And they say, oh, because of COVID. I was like, but you're reusing the cup. You're reusing the bowl. Like, yeah. why? It's just, it's kind of like people are just thinking of one part, but not the bigger picture. I don't yeah. know. But, you know, this is the thing, and it's affected me. Um, like, uh, 
it's to me again it's a little bit similar to i it's funny how easy it is to trigger people on uh, i found an interesting map on twitter of europe with countries where it is generally practiced that people wear shoes inside and countries where they don't and i just sort of made a joke because it's one of these things that i grew up wearing shoes inside and not caring but once you adopt the habit of taking shoes off and associating shoes in the house as being unhygienic you can't unsee it like once you see the germs yeah. <laughs> you can't unsee like, them did you sit on your bed with your shoes on that totally. always freaks me out when i see that on tv because i grew up in hawaii we always take yeah. our shoes off too <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah i mean and you know i lived in rural new zealand so of course sometimes you'd actually wear gum boots covered in mud and you'd take those off at the door but if you're in sneakers of course you wear them inside there was you know there was yeah. no real there was no place to put the shoes except outside and that was for work boots wow so but this is the thing and i never thought anything of it until but once once you see that is dirty then you can't unsee it as dirty well right and, I, and and this is the thing i think it's those um the, the mentality that everything has to be individually wrapped and you need a plastic spoon for everything. It's you're, you're trying to convince people to unsee germs that they see. <laughs> I think that's but, the challenge. But they don't see it on the bowls. They don't see it on the cups that they're reusing, but they see it only on the spoon. Yeah. I mean, I think so they I don't see the germs on that. the bowl, but they see the germs on the spoon and it's not rational, but, but yeah. remember they're yeah. seeing germs and you can't see germs, you know, right. it's you so this is the problem. It's the perception and reversing um, the perception is has a good point. I always associated individual packaged edibles with the omiyage culture. Not sure how COVID influenced this mentality. I think that's true. I always Part thought of it. of it as omiyage culture as well. Yeah. Um, but definitely with more takeout during COVID, it mm. has more plastic. We've seen more plastic, right? Yeah, it's always been that you're you, there. You're right. I used to work in a souvenir shop in New Zealand, and Japanese always want little individually wrapped so they can give it out to individual people, like a present for each person. But the problem is that then you end up with Oreos, where Oreo packs, where every Oreo is individually wrapped. And when you when Japanese see an Oreo pack without them individually wrapped, they think, "Oh, I'm going to get my hands dirty." You know, it's like that. So you're right. Maybe it started out with the omiyagi thing and it took over. But to me, it's this germ thing and yeah yeah it's funny it's interesting to see this the people are becoming so aware now there's so much government push on this and they're talking about charging for the plastic spoons next which i saw people freaking out on the internet you, you know what i really want to see charged is the in the supermarket you have the bags that people wrap around all the already packaged things they put another plastic bag around it that one yeah. that one's still free and we see a lot more of that now on the yeah. cleanups than we did before because people are starting to use that instead of the plastic bag, oh, which I they see. now have to pay for. So I would like to see even a one yen charge for that, I think would make a, a difference and make people stop using it so much. Yeah. 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 It's hard. It's hard. It's hard when people think they're doing it for hygienic reasons. Like when they're doing it with veggies and they use the, the little pull down bag. What even for me, I, I would find that hard because I've been living here for too long. But you're right. You just have to trigger the thought at least first, right? And I, I think that's what the purpose. No one cares about one yen. I had um, I had a big shock. Um, I tried something the other day. I you know Seven Eleven is advertising they're using bioplastics on their rice balls, and I was I saw a press release about that months ago. I was really excited. So when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is great. I bought it. I took it home. I put it in my garden. I put it in water. I put it in direct sunlight. I put it in shade. None of it was at all changed after a month. It's exactly like normal plastic. So I don't know how they get away with calling it a better solution. Is it's it bio? Very 
is it supposed to decompose or is it just that it's made from biological products but it's I, actually quite durable? I put it on Instagram and uh, some people who are working in the packaging industry said it's very murky. It's a little bit, it's called greenwashing, right? The yeah, company yeah. is looking good because they're using, I think it was 30% plant-derived source with the plastic and it's it's highly yeah. um, processed. So it's basically, it works like plastic, but I was under the impression it was biodegradable, yeah. which would have been better, right? I'll, I'll mention something you probably appreciate. I, I was at the supermarket the other day and I saw some American uh, French uh, not, potato chips that I'd never seen before, but they were salt and vinegar flavored and I love that and they're really hard to find in Japan. So I thought, oh, I'll, I'll get a bag. And it was, uh, it, it was a brand, it was called like... It, the entire thing was bright yellow and covered in nothing but you know environmental claims, gluten-free, GMO-free. It was actually called, I'm trying to remember the name of the brand, but it was literally like, you know, safe food. It was literally like the, the brand name. And it was covered in all of these, like a race car, covered in, in, in these sustainability claims. And then you flip it around on the back and it said down the bottom uh, below the barcode, not for sale in California. <laughs> and I was like, why? I became curious, like, uh, you know, this whole thing. I mean, I just want the salt mini. I don't really even care. But, you know, it's got all these claims. And then down the bottom, huge glitters, not for sale in California. So I, I Googled it. Why, why is this not for sale in California? And it said, oh, because all these chip making companies put acrylamide, a known can can uh, cancerous chemical, into the, the, or they use it in the boiling process. And when I opened the bag, it smelled like 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 marker pen a little bit. <laughs> and because I'd Googled it and I'd seen that this has acrylamide, I, I did try one. Uh, but then I was like, you know what? I'm kind of I'm totally put off now. But but it was just so funny because it was almost like a cartoon how it was just covered in this greenwashing oh. stuff. And I don't even care honestly. I don't I don't need to see it's GMO free to buy a pack of chips. But but they go to all that effort. It's almost like the the harder they try, the more they're trying to hide something. <laughs> the, the greenwashing is ridiculous, isn't oh, that's, it? You know, that's crazy. And then I mean, one of the reasons I I wanted to start my own consulting firm and help the small guys hmm. who are actually doing sustainable business, but yeah. they're not getting any credit and they're not branding themselves that way. And then the big guys are using all the branding, yeah. but they're not actually doing it. So I wanted to help the small guys. That was my aim. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's just it. You know, that's right. So many big companies exploit those claims. I, I actually watched Super Size Me Too on um, oh, uh, on Amazon the other week, and it was specifically about, it was about the claims relating to uh, like what what a free what a free range chicken is. Apparently, you only have to have like a ridiculous like a one tatami mat of oh, space yeah, in bad. front of the pen, and it's not really natural as no. you imagine. And so exactly, they sort of, it was it, it, the whole documentary was actually about how greenwashing happens and how it was possible to put all of these claims. They tried to qualify for every claim, like put the bare minimum on like a chicken farm. And yeah, it was as you would expect. Yeah. Um, so like yeah. Even, I mean, the whole word greenwashing, it actually works just to make your package green and yeah. not make any claims at all. Like even if you have a normal product, but you change your packaging to green, people buy it more thinking it's more sustainable isn't that crazy yeah yeah it's sort of like we have to educate ourselves all over again as consumers yeah, you, you know we, we did and then discerning, a discerning customer right yeah. and japan is a long way behind all of that but the thing about japan that's wonderful is that there is actually so much wonderful fresh locally grown great vegetables fruit and everything it's one of the best things about japan is you know it's a small country so it's there's not it's easy to distribute and get fresh food in japan 
and there was all this wonderful stuff so you don't have to you, you know i actually eat so much less processed food here i think that i would be eating if i was back in new zealand or australia or living in america so it is wonderful so you know but at the same time it's kind of ruined a bit when they go and put it in 10 plastic bags to sell an apple that was picked yesterday i mean <laughs> so. that, that's a hundred percent true right mm. and if i compare the kind of snacks I could get in 7-Eleven America mm -hmm. compared to getting rice balls and edamame and healthy things at a convenience store here. Even though you have the plastic problem, it is a culture yeah. more kind of focused on healthier eating. You can eat healthier here. It yeah. is easier. Yeah. It's funny. Everything's just a little bit off, isn't it? And the environment, the, definitely the packaging thing, that's definitely culture. It's definitely uh, just worried about sanitariness and seeing germs. And it's how do you counter that? How do you give that assurance Yeah. A now, and offset the damage? So, yeah. Next big topic, of course, we have to talk about is the gender <laughs> gap. What a nightmare. Since the last time we talked, there's been so many gender issues that came up because of the Morty fiasco. Ugh, I mean, it, to say that that's a that in itself is a gender. It's not so much that that was a gender problem, so much as it just highlights, you know, how far Japan. I mean, the fact that uh, in the Davos World Economic Forum, we're measured across all these uh, political participation, economic participation. After all of that, that a country like Japan can come nine places behind Saudi Arabia oh. for gender equality. <laughs> it's so depressing. And it's so related to uh, the problem that a lot of women are, are having now during coronavirus, being let go from their jobs. Mm. Um, a lot of, what is it, more than 50% of women working in Japan are working part-time. And what they mean by part-time is an insecure contract system. It's not, yeah. not part-time in terms of hours. It's yeah. just a very insecure job position, right? Yeah. The, the, when, when, the, when Japan let go of the, the, permit, the, the lifetime employment system in 2002, um, and they kind of fibbed. The guy who designed it admitted that he was fibbing when he said he intended to have 10% of the workforce flexible so that companies wouldn't be you know, crushed crushed under the weight of you know being un unable to cut back when they were doing badly but he later admitted his intention is for most people in japan to be working on these contract systems but even back before that the situation always was when i worked in japanese companies most of the career you know salespeople and the career workers were men wearing suits and the women would wear corporate uniforms and they would be on contracts and they would be the assistants all over the office and it was this idea that they would uh, work until they get married or until they get pregnant or you know and then they might come back, uh, you know, when, when the kids have left high school as 40-year-olds. So you'd have these basically 20 to 25-year-old and, uh, you know, 45-plus women all wearing these uniforms going around. And it was you, you, that's the way that even the traditional thing was structured. So, of course, when you have those people on more vulnerable contracts and you're not promoting women as equal workers, that, yeah, those are the positions that are easiest to let go when companies are under stress. And so it just shows up how... how I think the economic shift, it, it does take a long time to correct that, right? You can't just snap your fingers and suddenly, I mean, you could argue that you could, but realistically, right? You can't just put, yeah. put someone in a position that they're not built up for. You need to invest and train and hire, and you need to hire them with the expectation they're going to have careers from the beginning. And that takes a long time. Yeah. But but what drives me crazy is the economic thing I admit is hard. I, I can see the difficulty of that, and I can see efforts being made. The Kedanren is promoting more women executives and they realize that to, to get a woman executive they've got to be starting 20 years before that right so it takes a long time to get that that pull out there and you know they're starting to make that effort but politics 
it drives me crazy that, that the parliament in Japan has uh, something like 10% women when the, under the electoral system in Japan, you don't vote for every representative. Uh, half, most of the people in parliament, you just vote for the party and the party just makes a list of whoever they like that they decide to fill the seats. So parties can decide in Japan like they do in Sweden and Norway and countries like that, that when you have a proportional representation system and you vote for parties and you have party lists, you can have actually a rule. Political parties in New Zealand and Scandinavia have rules that 50% of the women and, and uh, maybe even more than that in the top names on the list can be women. And that's just uh, the government can decide any time to increase the yeah. number of women in parliament. And yet it's less than 10%. I was talking to um, some Swedish people about that because I've always been interested in that. I did a semester abroad in Norway, oh. and that was one of the issues we talked about a lot about um, social equity. Hmm. And this is way back in the 80s, right? And they yeah. were so far ahead even of America at that time. Yeah. And uh, they were saying it's really hard to have a quota of 50%. And of course, everybody complains. You're not going to find people qualified enough. But when you make the decision that you're going to follow that quota, you find them. Yeah. They're there. You just have to set a target and actually stick to it. And I think, I really think if Japan set a target, they would find qualified women to fill the quota, right? Most that's what most countries do, and no, I mean Scandinavia was they went fifty percent, they went all the way right away. Most countries just set thirty percent, but you know even thirty percent would be huge in Japan, and that's right. It's that idea that you start to create an expectation that people start to become interested because they see it's something possible, and you just develop a pool of qualified people, you know, who build that experience, and yeah, it needs a bit of a kickstart in Japan. Um, but the fact that the government, you know, has been flying a flag of of promoting equality as one of its sort of as one of Abe's main pillars, and he was the longest serving prime minister, and yet, after eight years of that, Japan ranks nine places behind Saudi Arabia. You have to ask: Was he really serious, <laughs> or was it a slogan? You know, because there are things. I admit there are, there are hard Mental, things, but there are easy things too. Tokyo University entrance exam fiasco that oh, happened yeah. under Abe, didn't it? Yeah, and I mean, they had more qualified women than their low limit that they set and still they didn't let in that limit they wanted to accept yeah. more inferior candidates who happened to be men i mean it's well that was actually so so that was I and mean, that was ridiculous. That was a private university. So that was and, and that was historic. So on on the one end it's how you can't say that specifically was Abe, but but certainly it shows a problem throughout the society. What happened was that Tokyo Medical University was actually rigging the scores of the entrance exam results against women. If for women candidates, they would actually mark them down 15% because they found that if too many women got in, um, they they presumed that they would... Um, well, they said uh, they were getting pressured from the hospitals who yeah. had the impression, whether it was true or not, they had the idea that they didn't want to hire women because women would quit to take care of their kids or get right. pregnant. You right. know, I mean, this is uh, this is happening. All but the result was, world, but the the, it was the opposite of it. But it was like inverse affirmative action. They actually started secretly marking down women to try to reduce the number of women qualifying for medical school when they were qualifying. I mean, you know, over a long period of time, outrageous. And and this is where the Mori thing. It's not so much what. I mean, what Mori said was outrageous, but it was just the fact that he even thought it was okay to say. You yeah. can't control what people think, but the fact no, that, you know, no. 
the fact that it was kind of like, well, that's just Japan. That's just the way people are. Yeah. But you, when you're head of an international Olympic committee, you are the face of Japan. You are Japan's brand. So why would they have put someone in power who's like that? But he's very connected. And the same thing for the Tokyo university scandal for the medical students yeah they found out that scandal was broken they knew who the women were who were discriminated against and the women said um they wanted compensation or they wanted to be entered and then even then the university mm -hmm. denied them entry yeah. so it's like even after the information is clear there's no recourse there's yeah. there's no penalty which is part of the problem right absolutely and what it shows what it shows is that yes while people might claim that oh japan really does is sincere that it does want to improve on this and it set all these goals and it's you know the kadan runs in on it and obvious declaring that he's in it, you know that he's all for it in the end of the day if the leadership if the people in power to affect the changes are really not bought into it then you know the very hard work behind actually achieving the equality is never going to come around, and you know it, it means that the rhetoric is empty. And, and what that university case and what Mori shows is that the leadership in Japan, it, it makes the words look empty, um, and, and, and that's why Japan is ranked behind Saudi Arabia because you know it's not able to back up its good intentions. You know it, it, it makes people question whether it has good intentions. Uh, which is a shame, right? Because you know this is Japan has a declining population. They have labor shortages. Uh, so, so Abe correctly stated the logic that you know without increasing participation in women, you know that actually the whole economy is going to sink. And yet, it's people like Mori saying stupid comments like he did uh, are exactly why that problem. And it's it's actually it's a it's to solve a problem. It's it's not a um, it's not just trying to be virtuous for the sake of it. It's actually trying to fix a, a, a problem for Japan. And they, they don't seem capable of doing it, you know, but they get reelected. So uh, I, I, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, kind of a connected topic, which I'd love to talk about. Um, yeah. It's a big issue in Japan right now is about immigration and mm. migrants mm. and how uh, Japan is trying right now to put through a more difficult policy to make it more difficult for migrants to appeal for asylum uh, so, this is for refugees right refugees yeah. yeah yeah so um they just are going through government right now trying to make it more difficult you used to be able to apply for asylum as many times as you like and now they're making it illegal to apply more than two times mm -hmm. so if you apply more than two times you refuse to be deported back to your country maybe because of climate change that your country is underwater which is happening around the world maybe because of war which mm. is happening right mm. and you your life is in danger to go back to your country and if you are refused two times you have to be deported or go to jail yeah. it is what the law is becoming right. it's crazy yeah i mean yeah immigration is always tricky so Overall, immigration Japan has vastly expanded immigration in the last twenty years, and the number of foreigners in Japan has gone up like four times in the time that I've been here. So, on the one hand, uh, it is promoting certain types of immigration for work, and you know, for getting low, low, low-paid workers and so on, working on farms and so on. But specifically, Japan has always been really resistant to accepting refugees, and 
this is the thing. I actually did a video. If you look on my channel, I, I did a couple of videos with the, the Japan Association of Refugees talking about this. Uh, and um, yeah, yeah, it, it's is fascinating. Jean, Jean Best, I've interviewed her too. Uh, uh, me, I think it's Miyuki Nozu yeah. was who I was talking to. But she's, uh, she's one of the sort of leaders of it here in Tokyo. But yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I asked her, so so why why would a refugee even come to Japan? You know, uh, and, and she sort of explained that well, a lot of refugees. But when you're getting out of a war zone or whatever, when you're when you're running for an airport, people just get on the first plane, <laughs> uh, and they they and then they normally they have enough information, and they expect for most countries in the world, when you get out of the war zone or the country that you are fleeing from, uh, as soon as you arrive in a, in a safe country, you then go and register with the UN uh, HCR as a refugee, and then you can apply to either settle there or move on to a, another country. So there's actually a globally treaty-based treaty agreed procedure, right, for um, doing this. So people are not looking to necessarily, you know, be refugees in Japan. They're just looking to get out of the war zones or the places where they do not feel safe or whatever where they are. And they end up here and they apply here. But what happens in Japan is Japan just has this um, thing where the country where they land gets to determine if they meet the UN refugee criteria or not. And Japan just doesn't recognize anybody. There are people coming here from Syria there are Kurds from Turkey, people in unequivocal war zone situations uh, with perfectly yeah. plausible cases that would be accepted in any other developed country and, and they're being rejected in Japan. Uh, it's crazy. I mean, to compare a similar GDP country is Germany mm -hmm. to Japan and Germany took 53% of the refugees who applied for asylum and Japan took 0.4%. Yeah. Only 20 to 30 people per year are accepted yeah. in Japan. Yeah. And look, you know, um, there's different factors. With Europe, of course, there's colonial legacy and a feeling of responsibility to be more open as, and so on as well. There are things like that um, that partly contribute to that openness um, that Japan doesn't have so much. But, I mean, at the same time, statistics just say if you're rejecting 99 point whatever percent of applications you must be re rejecting some legitimate refugees and look everybody knows that there are um you know there's no dispute even the 53 percent. so there's a high percentage of people who are of course economic migrants who are just want to you know live in better countries for their families right they want to escape countries in poverty or whatever um, and so they they and sometimes and i and i was told um, normally the, the hearing process in Japan takes three years and you're allowed to work during that process. Um, so sometimes people, you know, people do deliberately um, game the system for sure. But the whole idea of the system is to make sure that the legitimate people are taken care of. And the whole reason you have a, you have a refugee framework is you never know when your own citizens are going to need it. You're right? You look yeah. after other people because exactly. yeah. it's, it's just being a good neighborhood community members if you look at the the social problems that we're having in japan with the aging society lack of laborers if you search for any jobs in japan right now you know what most of the jobs you'll see is care mm. you need people working in nursing care with the elderly that is a huge drain where we just do not have enough workers to take care of the elderly population here and so in so many ways and then look at the farms there's not enough people to do the farming and the agriculture mm. and the schools are empty because there's yeah. not enough kids so if you did have a system which was sane and which would take legitimate cases and take the time but accept a higher number which the united nations and all the countries are pushing japan to do 
Hmm. It would actually be better for Japan, right? What? In terms of yeah. population and growth. I mean, look, the population and the work thing and everything, I think you should separate from, from the refugee issue. Um, Japan, you know, can and does have uh, immigration approaches to allow farm workers and so on, and they've dramatically increased those. To me, the thing about refugees, you should separate it. It's not about what's, what, it's not even, it should have nothing to do with Japan's interest. It should have nothing to do with whether Japan needs more workers. It's about morality. Yeah. It's about whether, you know, do you save someone who's running for their lives or not? Yeah. It's just being a good citizen and, and figuring out, well, what's in it for me? Uh, that's just wrong. And the fact well, that I Japan just, is... You know, I think it's, it, is, it is good to think about it from both sides because there are people who only think of, well, what good is it going to be for Japan to allow them in? There yeah. are people who who think about that, right? But Japan signed up to the Refugee Convention where it agreed that you know, with all the other countries that signed up, that if people who are legitimate refugees come to my country, we're going to recognize them as refugees and take care of it. And my concern, my, my objection to all of this is that Japan is not meeting its international obligations because by rejecting, by turning away legitimate refugees in need uh, for whatever convention purpose of convenience, it's actually breaking its promise to, to the United Nations that it would actually treat those people legitimately like, like other countries that signed up. It's breaking its promise and it's being called out for that. And the other thing is that when it tries to kick these people out and say, hey, Kurdish people, go back to Turkey, um, and, and they say, I'm not going back, I'll get killed if I go back, they put them into indefinite detention. And the UN called them out for this this week. They said that Japan has constructive arbitrary detention without end, you know, because if they don't get the cooperation to leave, they just stay in jail forever without without any judicial recourse. And the UN said, you're not only failing your refugee obligations, but you're actually, you have a system for imprisoning people without uh, proper due process indefinitely. And that's actually also against Japan's international obligations. And Japan is acting with outrage. And the, part of the reason they're amending the immigration law is, okay, we're going to have reasons to put them in jail now. We're going to amend the law to, give, to add legitimacy to the mistreatment that we're giving them. Uh, and again, they're being called out rightly on that. It's it, to me, it's simple morality. You know, it's not even it's not economics or self interest. So yeah. And by the way, I say this: I am the grandchild of a refugee. I wouldn't be here if there if there wasn't acceptance of refugees. So you all, know, all Americans, unless you're Native American, you're a child of an immigrant, right? You know. Yeah. It's American. America was created by immigrants. <laughs> yeah. That's most of the population. Nobody is from there. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's a big issue, but I I thought that was really timely and important to talk about because it's going through the government this new more stringent regulation right it's, now. It's attempting to add formality and procedure to the in, to the injustice uh, and rejection of people running for their lives <laughs> right now. Uh, you know, they're trying to formalize it. So they're worsening the situation in a way. They they they're they're, they're they're fixing it in the wrong direction. Um so yeah, they deserve to be called out. I, I found this one quote. This is a great article by the Foreign Press that I, I have up here on, on the screen about the issue. And it, um, one of the quotes from it is, public support for political issues in Japan can be hard to achieve, especially on immigration. Yeah, but you know what? So Japan has increased the number of immigrants in Japan by four times. There's like nearly two and a half million. There were no Vietnamese people just about in Japan. They didn't even register like uh, 10 years ago. And now they're the second largest group, more than Koreans. So um, 
one thing I actually like about the way that Japan has handled immigration is that it's not been political. It's never come up in an election debate. Um, you know, sure, I think if they did politicize it like every other country, people are going to say, oh, I don't want strange people from other countries coming to this place. And that's the mistake. So many countries make it political. In Japan, it's purely administrative. The Ministry of Justice just decides how many workers we need and they let us in. And, well, and immigration well, has been so deregulated since I've well, been here. What is the benefit? Why are they pushing through making it more stringent? I, I don't understand what the incentive is. So, so Japan is being really liberal on immigration. They have dramatically opened the floodgates on immigration, and it's it's barely been politically controversial. Only extreme, you know, fringe parties have even raised it as an issue. But they are extremely conservative and anti on on refugees. And refugees are only like twenty people per year, you know, out, out of twenty thousand applications. That's crazy. Um, but when you think that there's two and a half million foreigners in Japan, so really, refugees and immigration are totally separate. Japan is not politicized immigration very much, and immigration it's, is actually open. It's easier than ever. I think they were talking to immigration lawyers and refugee advocates in the same article. So I think yeah. I can get that. Because it's, it's under the immigration law, but, but the treatment of refugees is like a paragraph under the immigration law. Most immigrants in Japan, you know, it's easier to come to Japan and get a five-year visa than it ever was, you know, um, for most people that want to come here. You know, if you're particularly if you're from a rich country and you want to live in Japan and you have skills and whatever, it's easy to get a visa. But if you're a refugee running for your life, for some reason, Japan makes it super hard. They do not want people running for their lives coming to Japan. They only want immigrants. Um, and, and to me, the refugee thing is a, is a moral duty. And, and immigration lawyers, they know the refugee provisions of the Immigration Act, which are just a really tiny part of it. But it's just completely immoral the way that the government's doing it. And it's rightly being called out on it. Japan is actually not it's becoming it's become very very open to immigrants the foreign population has exploded in japan so it's not an anti-foreigner thing i think it's this thing that we don't know where refugees come from or if they're legit or if they're just scamsters running away for economic reasons and pretending to be refugees and so they're just rejecting everybody um and again you know i think it's that emergency situation that that's the weird part and for some reason japan is actually more and more open to immigration but they don't want refugees and it doesn't make sense yeah. Well, that, you know, I really appreciate your point of view. That that was a really interesting interview that you did. I did watch that on your channel. Yeah. I would encourage anybody who hasn't seen that to watch that. Um, that was yeah. a great interview. Uh, should we leave on a positive note? Have Please. you noticed any positive things? You mentioned battery put, technology. Yeah. Although, honestly, I'm not sure how well I could riff on it other than it's just cool that it is just uh, at the moment, like Toyota has the most battery pat patents of any company, even though they're hardly using them, but they say that they will. Uh, GM has a bunch of cool, they've figured out how to make bat batteries better than better than Tesla, they say, um, you know, ones that are more space efficient and, and charge faster. So, and, and that can be used for grid storage. Come up in our conversations before is about the problems with the grid. And how if battery technology improves and batteries can be used in neighborhoods and residentials more, yeah. it takes a lot of pressure off of the grids, which are aging and have loads of problems, especially handling renewables. So, yeah. Right. It's the intermittency, right? It's, it's that, you know, you, you need to match the amount of electricity in the grid with the amount that people are using. And the problem is that you can't guarantee when there's going to be clouds and when there's going to be wind. But if you put all of the, if you just have it all charging huge batteries and storing it all up, and then you just draw from the batteries, whatever you need, you can do that instantly. And it allows you to plug in. Whereas if you have it going straight into the grid, it's funny to actually install wind power, you actually have to have a diesel generator attached to it to offset the intermittency to, to, to start and stop for where it ramps up and ramps down to compensate for the instability caused. You can't actually install, well, 
sorry, I'm talking 2006, but um, so maybe this isn't, but this is why. I, I think they fixed that. I, I would hope so. Um, well, but this is what Petrie Something that recently happened, you know, in Japan, they changed the electrical sourcing rules so you can buy your electricity from anywhere, no matter where you are. Right, they did, right. Yeah. So last year, I chose 100% renewable source. They had loads of wind farms and solar farms and everything. Everything was going great. My bills, we have solar panels on the roof as well. Yeah. I was feeling great about it. Um, so if I have to buy anything from the grid, at least my local uh, utility, they have to buy it from renewable sources. I was so happy. And yeah. then February, mm. we had an insane cold snap. Do you remember yeah. that in Japan? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the electric companies around Japan actually increased production of fossil fuel energy but you can't increase production of renewable energy. Right. So anybody like us who was buying 100% renewable when we needed it had five times higher electric bills, uh, yeah. which was a real shock. And I noticed, I mean, I don't know about renewables, but something similar happened in Texas, right? Because it's a... Yeah. So a, and they tried to blame renewables for it in Texas, system, but it was right? the same. Actually, Texas is like Japan. It's a small, isolated grid um that's completely deregulated and yeah it just couldn't handle everybody wow. turning on the heaters at once that was um, a shock so it really made me think i need to invest in a home battery to yep. store my solar power for when we need it at night and uh you know those kind of i hope that doesn't happen again storage, bankrupt us home storage and big storage is the key for increasing renewables the the problem is you can't install more wind than than the grid can stabilize unless you have that over that surplus being stored somewhere because you can't have that running into the grid because you know that that can cause outages so yeah if you have big big batteries or big hydro pumps you just have wells with mechanical pumps on them you can do all sorts of things to actually store that surplus energy and if you can store that and turn it on and off as you need it then you can actually have more wind than you use. You can actually go and install. You don't have the limits on installation that you currently have. Yeah. And you know, and you can do that at both places. So and yeah. I heard that there are some electric cars. I have a Tesla and you can't store from mm -hmm. your solar panels. Unfortunately, you can't you can't some cars are now enabling that, I've heard as well. They're talking about having the house. So I can I can charge my car from the solar, but I can't charge the house from the car. Nissan is is offering that is it nissan there's yeah. some cars you can right yeah and, and it makes total sense in japan because we have all these earthquakes and natural disasters so and they they announced right after a, a big natural disaster i remember a few months ago that they were going to make sure that yeah they get, you're going to be able to use your cars uh, uh, you know as as charging stations and actually it's not just nissan i've seen a few american car makers as well they've started to do this thing where, yes they've got plugs in the car where you can use your car as a generator um, you know, like an electric battery, basically. So, yeah, people are cottoning on to that. And, and this is all the tech is so new, and, and I'm sure it'll become standard in no time. But, um, yeah, it's wonderful to see the innovation and, and, and what it's going to be able you know, unlock. Really exciting. Yeah. And there's so many more uh, charging places, and I see gas stations going out of business around, which I always have a small cheer. Yeah. Um, I have a, a local gas station I used to use when I had a regular car. And now I only use it for the car wash every now and again. Oh, yeah. And uh, I always talk to the guy and I was like, do you guys have any plans to have like an electric charging area? Because I don't want to see you guys lose your job, you know, like yeah. there's just not enough. Well, that's right. 
and then the fact is you have to charge when you charge you know charging takes time so you know you could have a, I, I, what i understand is now that they have people who who need to spend more time some people in america they've discovered oh put a cafe in there and put a put a restaurant in there and you could actually make money different ways so there's actually opportunities open up from from the charging thing definitely i would yeah. love to see gas stations turned into coffee shops like <laughs> electric charging and a hydrogen charging and a coffee shop wouldn't that yeah. be yeah <laughs> Well, in Australia, New Zealand, they're basically, I'm sure it's the same in America. They're like supermarkets. You know. <laughs> well, oh, ideally, you would have local produce, um, <laughs> just use your own bag. You know, like I could design a great sustainable shop for any gas station. If you're going I, out of business, get in touch. Apart from the fact that it would be slightly hilarious, uh, I would. I, you should totally open up a, a, a chain of gas stations. I could just sort of see you. You could. You could actually do all of this, and it would be good. Well, you might as well reuse the building. You know, I have oh. seen some of the buildings reused as other shops. To be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but the, this is the idea. They're 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 supposed to be in places where they're accessible to anyone. You know, who has a car or whatever. So yeah, it's it's a total waste to just let them disappear. You can use them. Convenience stores as places to clean up your car, as places to do other things at once. So yeah, there's all sorts of opportunities. And like you say, if you could actually even combine local produce and 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 char you know renewable and uh, friendly charging, yeah, why not? Have a repair shop. That's something yes. we often talk about, right? Um, something Tesla needs more of. <laughs> great shade in yeah. summertime, right? Like the gas stations are such high roofs. Yeah. that it actually provides a lot of nice shade so what a shame to knock that down like use it yeah absolutely and the Wait, fact is as well gas stations super heart that's very nice of you appreciate that yeah. oh bye thank you yeah um the um yeah and the fact that gas stations because they're on those massive gasoline tanks you're not allowed to actually build houses on them the restoration is actually tough so so again you want to figure out some way to keep using the land in a way that's useful that that's not storing petrol but you know you, so yeah you, you don't want to yeah yeah it's actually i think I, that's a wonderful idea <laughs> i think you're onto something farmers markets i like it yeah <laughs> Well, that's our hour. Thank you so much, Hiko. That was awesome. Yeah, my pleasure always. So fun. Thank you, guys. So many great comments and questions today. Um, I don't think we read out everybody's, but I gave you all hearts, whoever commented. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This is cool. I like this app. I'll have to look more into this. This is very cool that you can see all the comments and everything all in one place. This is cool. It's really cool. Hey, kia ora, Louise. Oh, I know who you are. You, you. So you retweet Louise Poppy, right? You, she, she shows photos of Auckland sometimes, and I'm from Auckland. Yes. I'm, oh, that's Auckland. Oh, kia ora. Good to see you. She has beautiful tours that she does all the time, a lot on HAPS um, in Auckland. You should follow her. Wow, I think I will. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, I hope to see more of you on HAPS as well yeah yeah well i think i will so I, i'm just subscribing right now that's cool yes this is very very cool so thank you for the introduction yeah it's so nice to have you here um hopefully next month we can have another catch-up absolutely that'd be awesome yeah thanks everyone have a great night take care yeah bye i hope you enjoyed the episode today if you want to learn more about the work that i do have a look at inboundambassador.com you can also sponsor the work that I'm doing on the YouTube channel, Patreon, Buy Me A Coffee, Coffee, or Haps. Have a great day.